Our scripture reading today is found in Acts 11, 19 through 26. And I see everyone is already standing. <laughs> so, now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and then they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. This, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, on behalf of my wife and myself, I just want to say thank you so much for the warm welcome here. Uh, it's truly a delight to be with you. Uh, I heard some of you guys have some funny accents, but I'm getting used to it, having lived long enough in California. We've been Californians for about 20 years before we painfully had to uproot obedience to God and move to the East Coast. But our roots will always be here. And I'm an African by birth, I became an American by circumstances, but above all, I'm a Christian by the grace of God. And that's what my citizenship is. And for full disclosure too, I am not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. And I work for a non-profit. <laughs> but I believe I have a prophetic word because God's word speaks to us where we are today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I simply ask that you will help one beggar this morning to show other beggars where the bread is. And Lord Jesus, feed us till we want no more. Amen. Jesus and the Middle East on the move. I think it's a gripping title. I wish I could say I came up with it. Uh, I give Scott credit for it. And uh, because it's two things, because the East is on the move. If you can see in this picture, uh, these are some pre-migrants and refugees getting ready to try to move into Greece after they cross borders. And the following picture, so also some migrants uh, uh, crossing the Austrian border. These people have traveled many, many miles. And as I interact with these folks, I've met some interesting refugees. The following one is this long, tall, weird refugee I met in Jordan about two months ago. <laughs> I mean, this guy, bearded, you can see he's Middle Eastern. I mean, right, no doubt about it. 
but he's somebody that has a passion for God. And, and I hope you guys appreciate your missions pastor. And can I say also, Jeff, your heart for God. And let's just praise God, Scott, for the great work you're doing. And it's not only what he's doing in your congregation, but I want to know God has blessed you with a, uh, a thought leader in missions, missiology. Uh, not only in this country, but around the world. But everybody is not that positive towards it. There's anti-immigration people working strongly, globally, against resettling refugees. And then the other thing is, we, it's like the CNA, CNA uh, move, movement has, uh, moment has disappeared. And, and we, we don't think of it anymore, but as you know, just in November, uh, December at least, another four infants drowned. And as early as last Monday, we learned again about 400 people that in the Mediterranean have drowned. Well, it's just a little less than 400 when all the dust settled and they found out. It's happening on today. Uh, why are these people willing to do this? What's going on? And of course, the reason is, very clearly, they flee for their lives. Uh, terrorism is just killing them. The movement uh, is obvious. Uh, the following picture is one from Sinjar. It's a town that was a flourishing town, and you can see what's left today. Uh, the people there, uh, I was able to interact with them about 18 kilometers from that city where they're now living, and these people have just done anything they could to get away. And so people are willing to do whatever it takes to get away. And you see a little kid like this on the ocean, you say, my goodness, what parent can do that? And can you imagine if you have to push a stroller through mud for miles and miles and not quite knowing where you're going? And the sad thing is, as I interact with some of these people, some of them were school teachers, uh, they were business people, they had businesses. Uh, the one person, you'll meet him later, uh, he stayed in the equivalent of a, almost a 4,000 square foot home, which is just totally demolished. They have nothing but the plastic bags they carry. In this also, this whole process, we also see that the church is suffering. Again, that is in Sinjar, that used to be a church. And when we think about what's going on in real time, think of it this way. Uh, in the beginning of the previous century, 40% of Iraq were Christ followers. They were Christians, 40%. Today, less than 4% are Christians. So the church in the Middle East, your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters need our support. It's going on as we speak. No wonder New York Times run this article saying, uh, is it the end of Christianity in the Middle East? But you know, we can get overwhelmed with statistics and stuff. We forget it's real people and real numbers. Uh, this group of people I'm sitting there with, uh, I was able to visit with them in, in a pl place in northern Iraq, where they came from Syria. I mean, what's going on when you flee from Syria to Iraq? <laughs> you can imagine how desperate people are. And it's people that have a story like you and me. It's people that don't know where some loved ones are. It's people that have lost contact. 
Uh, the Syrian, Syrian refugee crisis, if you look at the next slide, uh, what we're saying about is just inside Syria itself, there's more than seven and a half million displaced people, just in the country itself. And then around the country, more than four million others in the countries from Iraq, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. And as you can see in the faces of these kids, they're hopeless, they despair because they think people have forgotten them. I won't bore you down or try to zone you out with statistics, but the following few may help you understand a little bit. Uh, if you just think of it, there's 21 million Syrian population before the war, and of those 12 million are now displaced, either internally or externally as refugees. So roughly you can say half of Southern California's population are just gone, boom, displaced, houses destroyed. That's the magnitude they're facing. Four million are in the Middle East and three million from all countries arrived in the United States over the past 35 years. And 340,000 Christian refugees have been resettled since 2003. And by the way, that's the largest religious population. People often say, well, we don't want to do anything. We want to work with Christians. Christians are part and parcel of it, guys. It's in there. Uh, we can go on, with, but I won't bore you further with these statistics. I enough to say that, uh, just one example, if you see this next photo, this person in this uh, home, I had the privilege of visiting with, that's the gentleman who had a 4,000 square foot home. That's his home now. Nothing. No closets. And the next picture you'll see what his house looked from the outside. That's where he is. One of the biggest problems today, I think, are the lies that the evil one is telling about this process. Now, you know in your backyard in Garden Grove, Glenn Peterson and his team, uh, he's here today, and at the back table, you can get more information, are resettling refugees right here in LA. And the lie is sometimes spread while you bring in terrorists. Nothing can be further from the truth. If, if you look at this chart, the screening process, you'll see there's at least 11 steps. I mean, it starts by having to gain refugee status. And by the way, the whole process is between 18 months and three years, and most often it takes up to nine years until a person is declared a refugee and that person is indeed uh, settled in another country. There's a referral to the U.S. That's a whole process by itself. And security clearance, where a number of security checks are done by intelligence agencies. Then there's an in-person interview, following by a DHS approval, medical screenings, matching of a sponsor agency such as World Relief. And from there, there's cultural orientation, but then a second security clearance to see if there's any new information that has surfaced. Now you're several years into the process already. And then on top of that, there's an airport check because they want to make 100% sure that the people we started with right in the beginning are still the same people that come in. And that's why fingerprinting and retina scanning and even a DNA testing come in at times. And only then is a person admitted to the US. World Relief has been doing this for the past 72 years. In Park Street, uh, 
Back 72 years ago, after World War II, there was a deep awakening among the evangelicals in the United States to help refugees. And at that point, Park Street led the charge, raised some funds. It's a fascinating story. We don't have time to go into it today. But that was where World Relief was born. We were born in a church. And today, of course, uh, as an arm of the National Association of Evangelicals, we serve globally with offices, uh, 26 offices around the U.S. resettling refugees and working in a, uh, about the same number of countries abroad where we serve. And there's wonderful results. The following picture show you. Remember those people walking through mud? These two girls have been resettled in Modesto. And then in the other photo, you can see the Al Jawabra family, uh, who's now living in Modesto. One of our offices are there. And the same thing can be said about people resettled right here, also in Garden Grove through the World Relief Office. How do we make sense of this big picture? And can I submit to you, it is so easy to get involved and do things, and our impact is nothing different than any secular organization. Because there's a gigantic difference between Christians doing resettlement and Christian resettlement. Because Christians doing resettlement often are nothing different than any secular intervention in helping people in their physical needs. But truly, Christian refugee resettlement touches the whole person and bring the presence of Christ in appropriate ways into it, and it's seamlessly integrated. And that's what World Relief is all about. I know that's what Pastor Scott is all about. That's what Lake Church is all about. The only way we make sense of this chaos is to accept it as a humanitarian crisis, but also as a missiological moment that is beyond our wildest expectations. We read in Acts chapter 11, and it says, now while the people were uh, busy, in, uh, meanwhile the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's, uh, during, uh, Stephen's death uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and Syria. Important to know about these people, the leaders of the church did not send them. Peter did not organize this mission trip. This was spontaneous, organic. And it's interesting, these people spreading the good news were in Antioch. Which country is Antioch in? Syria. It's Antioch of Syria. They were in Syria. And this is the starting of a church in Syria where they were first called Christians, little Christs, because that's what it means. That's the significance of these. But here's the interesting thing. Those people were nameless, fearless people like you and me. It's not big shot names. It's not the disciples. No, it, it was the masses. Just like in the Reformation when it was the peasants that took forth the good news. There too, it was nameless, fearless people. And they were scattered through the persecution. Now, uh, that's not exactly the strategy we have. Uh, for instance, if Scott comes up and says, okay, this is our mission strategy for this year. He and Jeff talked about it, and they said, this is what we're going to do. Half of you are going to die 
Everyone will lose all your property and all your possessions, and the half that's not dead will go to a country still to be determined where you'll be a refugee, and there you'll preach Jesus. I don't see any takers. That's what happened here. That's how God orchestrated it. And we say, that's insane. And God says, can you trust me? They preached the gospel, not clergy. But interesting thing is they preached it only to Jews. Why? That was a cultural barrier. If you go to Luke 4, chapter 28, you'll see when Jesus was speaking in Nazareth and he was explaining to people why he's doing what he's doing, he used the example, he said, when Elijah was alive, there were many lepers he could have healed, but he healed one leper, Naaman the Syrian. And after he said that, they wanted to kill him, and we read in Luke 4, he had to flee for his life. Because there was a revulsion when you talk Syrian. Could I submit to you as many times as I've heard people say, those Muslims... That's the kind of feeling. And so originally they dealt with people they're comfortable with. And it's because of this deep prejudice that originally they didn't reach out to everyone. We know how God had to work with Peter. And I want to labor a little bit on this point because prejudice can be very subtle. Uh, You know I come from South Africa. When I say South Africa, you say? Apartheid, right, I grew up in it. That's what I grew up in. I was a little nine-year-old boy, we lived uh, in the outskirts of the city and there was a street coming diagonally down a hill about one block from where I lived. It was a dirt road. But in those Africa storms when it rained, you know, four o'clock, it's nothing, blue skies, Five o'clock, it's pouring buckets, and a half hour later, it's blue skies again, and two, three inches can fall. That street coming down the hill became a river. And as a nine-year-old, I loved to go there and watch it. And I remember this one day, I was watching it, and there was a man of color with a bicycle, a basket in front of the bicycle, some food in it, and he was pushing it. And as he was pushing it, trying to get through this river coming down the street, it was so strong because it was about this deep. And, and, and I, I could see he's struggling and, and the front wheel, the front wheel went and it fell, the bicycle fell, he fell, his food washed away, and I saw a grown-up man crying. What did I do? I said, come with me. Took him to my home, I told the lady in the kitchen, fill up a box of food, we packed a box of food, he had probably twice as much food as he had, and I gave it to him. Great, right? Nine year old, I did it. He came to me, and he did the thing that's the most respectful thing he could do. He took his arm like this, stretched out his hand, and he said, donkey, my bossy. Translated it means, thank you, little Lord. Now today, it's repugnant to me that a little chubby kid could be called little Lord just because of the color of his skin. But that was apartheid. What do you think I did? You know what I did? I took my hands and I put them behind my back and I said, go. Why? Nobody taught me not to touch a person of color 
but I sense things. I grew up with things. It was in my DNA, so to speak. A deep, deep prejudice. Because I knew often if a teacup was used by a person of color, that cup went to the kitchen and will never use it again in the living room. Nobody had to teach that to me. I just took it in through the flavors around me, so to speak. Now in my own life, uh, dealing with that prejudice, as I grew up, I didn't like the system. There's things I really didn't like about it, but it was okay because my skin color was okay. But when I became a follower of Christ, it was a pretty radical conversion experience I had, everything changed. And I said, this is a wicked system. But you know, it took another six, seven years until I could come to the point to admit it's not a wicked system. It is sin, and I had to repent of it, renounce my heritage, and embrace a new worldview. Prejudice can be extremely deep. These people of Israel, these Jews, struggled with that. And I think often today we struggle with it too. Prejudice means I want to do away with it so that I can see people as Jesus sees them. Uh, even today, we hear people, well, uh, we want to help, but we want to serve Christian refugees. Think of yourself this way, folks. You are going on Interstate 5. There's a big bus, 90 people in it, big accident, right? There's bodies all over the interstate. It is terrible. Little kids, grown-ups, and you go there and say, uh, where are the Christians? I want to help the Christians here. Uh, are you a Christian? Okay, no, then stuff. You're a, no, what do you do? You help. What would Jesus have done? He would have helped. We don't reach out so that we can get the opportunity to preach the gospel or so that we can only help Christians. We do it because God says, care for others. That's the motivation. And can we guarantee that those we help will become followers of Christ? No. But we can trust God that he can work people and move them on in their own walk towards the kingdom. As we pray and as we unconditionally love and serve. One of the most beautiful things that happened, and you might have read about it in December in northern Kenya, there was a bus full of nationals, and it was stopped by Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is the Al-Qaeda uh, arm there in Kenya. And they jumped on, bus, on the bus with their machine guns, and they said, all the Christians, get out, we're going to kill you. Muslims, you're safe. Immediately in the bus, the Muslims began to pass calves around and says, no, sit, sit. And all of a sudden, the women all have calves, and the Muslim says, no. They're not going. If you want to kill them, you kill us too. And they got so angry and frustrated, they couldn't separate them because these Muslim population on the bus protected the Christian population, and at the end, they just, Al-Shabaab just left. I don't know what to make about that, but what I do know is there's genuine care and love there. 
And it's for you and me to figure out how to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into that. Because those people lived out more Christian faith than I've often seen in Christian circles. Uh, there's a danger of the ethnocentric view, how we view things. You know, there's about 2.8 billion Christ followers in the world, and only 11.4% of them live in the United States. So 98, oh, 88% of all Christians are not in the U.S. Let that sink in. We're not the majority. We're part of what God is doing. But we see in this passage too, they begin to preach the gospel. And the church responded. They, they heard something's going up there in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas, and Barnabas went up. And when he saw what's going on, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them. And we read there, he praised God, he encouraged them in their walk. And can I submit to you, please, never ever stop sending your missions pastors, Scott, abroad. Because through that ministry of presence, he is encouraging those who have been left behind to keep on keeping on. That's a critical part of what we have to do. We also see in this passage there was partnership collaboration because Barnabas went to look for Saul, and we know Saul will become Paul. Barnabas didn't say, this is revival time, I want all the credit. No, he said, I need someone else who can do stuff even better than I can. And he went out and he got Saul, and for more than a year they worked together. And the result is they were called Christians for the first time. Now that was a derogative term because the local people said, you, you guys are so bad, you, you're just like that Christ we sacrifice, you, you little Christs. Wow, that they may say that of us. So why is the church not responding today as it could? I think there's a, a spinal injury, the church has a spinal injury. What I mean by that is if I stood here and my friend here come with a big hammer, and I can see he got big strong arms. And as I speak, he take a hammer and begin to bash my feet. And you just see blood spatter. And I just keep on talking. And maybe he has a saw and he start cutting on my leg. And I just keep on talking. You will say, Gil, you are sick. Because somehow your foot is not telling your brain that you're hurting. You got a spinal injury. And I think we as the body of Christ have to repent of it because our brothers and sisters are suffering. And I also think we, we, we don't see the incredible opportunity that God is giving us. I think neither do we understand the extent of the gospel. You know, I used to say it's word and deed together. It's, it's, it's like fruit juice, at least like a fruit salad. You cut up the apple, you cut up the oranges, you make fruit salad. And my friend in Rwanda said, no, that doesn't work. You've got to make fruit juice. Get it in a, juiceify it. Because then you cannot separate word and deed. If I've got to ask you today, uh, for the next two years, you can only pray or you can only read the Bible, right? That's your two options. Who of you will say, I will only pray? Raise your hands. Okay, I see some hands. Great. Prayer warriors. Who of you say, I will only read the Bible? 
Ah, we see some Bible students. Who of you say, Gil, that is the dumbest question I ever heard? <laughs> that, that's like word and deed. No, it's, it's, it's not word. It's, no, it's what God called us to do. Jesus went around proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick. His 12 disciples did the same thing. The 72 we sent out. It's seamlessly integrated. Because God is interested in the physical well-being of people too. And I think the church is slow to respond to the refugee question because we forget that's important. Now, now can I submit to you, the biggest danger today is not persecution of the church. I mean, when the church is persecuted, it pops out somewhere else. The biggest danger is a watered-down gospel. That we go in and say, you are okay, I'm okay, the dog is okay, God is okay. And, and we don't get to the point where people understand the gospel matters, eternity matters. And just because I'm deeply committed to D doesn't mean I'm not deeply committed to the gospel. It's not the either or, it's a both and, inseparably. I can still remember when Jesus saved me, it was an incredible day. But I can also work with anybody to save a life. Because we have to. I think the church is not always responding the way it should because of false dichotomies. You know, we talk about the mission of the church and the life of the church, and we, we think in different categories. Here's the newsflash. The church does not have a mission. Don't fire your pastor, okay? The church does not have a mission. But the God of mission has a church. And it's for us to be in step with him. And if Jesus is the senior pastor, what would his agenda be? And we're in step with that. We talk about home and mission field. That's a dichotomy that's false. It's from everywhere to everywhere. You know, uh, when I became a believer, they talked about the 1040 window. I did not know what the 1040 window was, and I found out, okay, it's that little window on the map that include unreached, unengaged people. It include the countries where people try to send a missionary to and maybe he can get there or she can get there and serve for six months and they kicked out of the country or they martyred. Guess what? From those very countries, boatloads of people are coming to us now. And the church has to embrace this missiological moment and say, let's go for it. Uh, I hope you will line up there at Garden Grove and say, how can we help? And other organizations, you've got other organizations right here in your church and in your community to be part of. I think the biggest reason we church doesn't respond is because we don't understand and believe that God is in control. The size of your God will determine the extent of your outreach. Is your God one whom you have to protect and defend? 
Is he a God that unless I defend him, others will destroy him? No. God needs no defense. Truth needs no defense. It needs proclamation. And as we engage with others of different orientations, the Holy Spirit and the triune God is the high God that is more powerful than any other God. Often I think we're not eloquent enough in presenting it or deep enough in our faith to articulate it well. God is in control. Um, in Bavaria, which is part of Germany today, there was a custom uh, in the 1500s. They called it Easter laughter. That means on the Sunday after Easter, all the priests, all the churches pre uh, preached sermons. And this was part of a Lutheran tradition and the Bavarian tradition in which they showed that God is in control. So one of those stories would be about the ark, Noah's ark. And they said, Noah built the ark and of course he had to have this wood pegs to put in the ark to keep it floating about this size. And after he built the ark, he realized he made one peg to, 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 to fill. He didn't have one. But it was beginning to rain, the animals came in and they closed the doors and there was a hole and boy, the ark is going to sink. But snake, of course, the embodiment of Satan was kept outside the ark. And the snake saw that hole, he said, I'm gonna get in the ark and bring havoc there. And so the snake went into the hole and he started going into the ark and about halfway in, he said, wait, I can't go forward, I can't go back, I'm stuck. And they say that's how God used Satan to keep the ark floating. <laughs> if I ask you who was the greatest evangelist the past 50 years, who would you say? Who was the, who was the greatest evangelist the past 50 years? Billy Graham? What about this guy? Can, not that guy. <laughs> that guy. Oh, no, take him off. I'll never forget about a year ago when a dear friend in the Middle East said, that man has done more to bring people to examine scripture and come to Jesus in the Middle East than anyone else before him. Because when the atrocities took place of 9-11, there were sincere God-fearers, Muslims, that says, this cannot be our books. And for the first time, they start getting into their holy books. They start asking other questions. And you know what the result was? They came to Christ. Thousands and thousands. That was the renewal of the church in the Middle East. And of course, then the wars came and the other things came and it's pushed out. But there was hope abroad. What Satan meant for evil, what ISIS meant for evil, what Al-Qaeda meant for evil, God used for good. Amen. How big is your God? Did God create this insane mess? Few, if any, of these displaced refugees from Syria and Iraq would have been able to hear the life-changing gospel of Christ if it weren't for the war and their suffering. Did the Lord create this insane mess? No. But he can bring new life out of chaos. What ISIS intended for evil, God intended for good.
In conclusion, can I exhort you to have trifocal lenses? Global, or start with local, global, and eternal. There are global things we, uh, local things we can do right now. You can sign up in the, in the back today before you leave and get involved. If you're interested in global getting involved, see Pastor Scott. Uh, Stephanie Strzok, my colleague, is also here. You can talk with her. She's at the table. But above all, keep that eternal glasses on. This is not just about having people find a home and having people find clothes and not being in mud and persecution. It is giving the gospel of Jesus Christ to them too. And praying for that. So as we conclude here, let's pray. Maybe you've never met this Jesus. And if you've never met him, I want to invite you right now to embrace him as your savior. Maybe you have to say, Lord, I've done stuff, forgive me. There's things since Pastor Jeff led, uh, uh, led us earlier this morning. Things we've done, things we didn't do. And maybe you've never committed to him. Today, ask him, come into my life. I want to be your follower. Step across that line. Christ's arms are open for you. Maybe you have to confess a prejudice. Maybe there's a resentment in you towards people who are different. Ask God to forgive you and ask him to give you eyes to see them as he sees people. And corporately, we have to say, Lord God, please restore the spinal injury we have. Teach us what it means to suffer with those who suffer. Teach us what it means to unconditionally love and make your goodness known. Father God, we come this morning and say, we love you. You've heard our songs of worship. We want to serve you. Teach us, O oh God. And God's people say, Amen.